May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. First of all, let me see how good it is to be back with you all. It's good to be in Florida, I'm not going to lie, but it's good to be back home and it's great to see you all. I think maybe you've seen it um, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. Um, if you've gone down Victoria Street in uh, the Canadian side of the falls, above the, the road, about 20 or 30 feet up in the air, there's this uh, steel wire that runs across and on it a statue of a man tightrope walking across the, 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 the street. It's suspended up there. The, the man is, is a statue of a real person, the 19th century uh, daredevil Charles Blonde. And um, maybe you recall some of the story about this, um, this kind of maniac of a guy. He was, uh, he was a daredevil, you know, daredevil from the womb. And um, he was, without qualification, the 19th century's most fantastic, electrifying daredevil in the world. Um, on June 30th, 1859, more than 25,000 people gathered at Niagara Falls on both the American and Canadian sides, American and Canadian sides, to watch Charles Blonda as he was going to tightrope walk across the, the Niagara Falls Gorge. On a light rope, one inch in diameter. Now, as they stretched this rope across the, the, uh, the cavern of the falls, they had to tie it with guy ropes at every 20 feet so that they could create tension. But in the center section of the tight rope was a swag because they couldn't get any ropes on it to tighten it up. So there was a 50-foot section that just kind of dipped down in the middle. And, and the people who were there said, there's no way you, can't, you couldn't possibly walk across this. But, of course, he had to try. And so uh, Charles Blonda got up on this, uh, to this uh, tightrope, and he has this 26-foot ash pole that weighs 50 pounds. Blonda himself is only 5'5", five 140, a, a beautiful specimen of a human being. And he gets up there, and he, he has this, uh, this big pole, and, and he, he, he steps out onto the tightrope and begins to walk across. People were gasping. I mean, they were, they were all over the place, you know, selling lemonade and whiskey and all sorts of things. And, and everyone is, is wagering bets on whether or not he's going to make it. Uh, they're terrified. They are sure that it's going to be the most horrific sight they've ever seen in their lives. And yet, it's like looking at a train wreck. You can't look away, right? And so Blonda gets up on the tightrope and he begins to walk. He gets about a third of the way across. He stops and he bends down and he balances the pole that he's carrying on the rope, so that the pole itself is balancing all by itself. He stands up, reaches into his pocket, and pulls out what seems to be fishing line. It's got a little weight on it, and he starts lowering the fishing line off of the rope, standing over top of the gorge. As he's doing this, the maid of the mist comes underneath him, and it stops. And the captain grabs hold of the lure that Blonda is dropping down, and he ties a bottle of wine to it. Blonda starts pulling the wine back up. You can tell he's French because if he was from Kentucky, it'd have been bourbon. But he pulls it up, he gets it to the top, pops the cork, takes a big drink out of it, puts the cork back in, lowers the bottle of wine back down to the May of the Mist. The captain takes it, he drops the cord, bends down, picks up his balancing pole, goes to the center section, down and across, gets to the last third, 
And the reporter said he took off running in a sprint across this this one-inch uh, uh, light rope as he runs to the Canadian side. He gets to the Canadian side, and the crowd goes crazy. They go berserk. They can't believe what they have just witnessed. There were men and women alike who were watching it that reporters said were fainting from sheer you know, fright of what might happen. But then something happened that nobody expected. Blonda's manager came up and stuck a backpack on him. He got back on the tightrope. Nobody said anything about a return trip. He gets back on the tightrope, and he begins to walk back across to the American side. Again, he gets about a third of the way, and he stops. He lays his balancing pole down on the rope. He takes off the backpack. Remember, he's 300 feet above the falls. He takes off the backpack, pulls out a, a dogger-type camera. You know, there's those uh, old kind of wooden square ones with the, the, the tripod. Only He only has one pole on it. And he balances the, 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 the one post of the tripod on, on the rope, and he you know, slides in the big, uh, big negative and takes a photo of the people standing across watching him. Pulls it out, puts in another slide, turns around and takes a picture of the Canadian side, people watching him. Puts the camera away, packs it back in his backpack, bends over, picks up his balancing pole, heads all the way across, down through the swag, up to the other side, finishes off on the American. The crowd goes berserk. They go absolutely wild. This is the greatest thing they've ever seen in their lives. But he's not done. He gets a wheelbarrow. Leaves the pole behind, puts the wheelbarrow on the rope. He gets on the rope and begins to cross. You, you look this up. Don't do it right now. Put your phones away. But later on, you're going to look this up and find out I'm telling you the truth. He gets on the rope, pushes the wheelbarrow across, down across the swag, up over to the other side, and people are going ballistic. They just can't believe it. He gathers himself, gets a little break, and his manager had done something else. He loaded the wheelbarrow with bricks. Blonda pushes the wheelbarrow, loaded with bricks, up onto the rope and pushes it back across from Canada to the United States. By now, it is pandemonium. I mean, this is unbelievable. I told you, he was the greatest daredevil of his age. While people were going crazy, Blonda jumps up onto the fence behind him, you know, the kind of guardrail. He jumps up onto it and he shouts out to, uh, you know, takes a few bows, shouts out to the crowd. Now, who believes that I can put a man in this wheelbarrow and push him across. And without exception, people were applauding. We believe. Oh, Charles Blonda, you're the greatest ever. We believe you can do it. And then he says, and who will volunteer to be that man? (laughs) See, that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? I mean, talk is cheap, right? You know how someone could prove that they really believed? <laughs> they could get in the wheelbarrow. There's no risk in saying, I believe. No risk at all. Unless, unless you're willing to get in. St. Paul's longest letter in the New Testament was written to Christians living in the city of Rome. Paul did not plant this church. These were uh, Christians who would begin to gather there from other uh, work of other um, evangelists. But there's a group of Christians meeting in Rome, 
And Paul writes his longest letter in the New Testament. About the year 57 AD, Nero is emperor. And Nero is at a good stage in his life. Um, he, was, he, was pretty, uh, he was pretty compliant. He got along pretty well with everybody except his mother, and, um, whom he later killed. But he, he got along well with people, and, um, and he was known as being a uh, kind of an easygoing emperor for the day. Um, St. Paul was happy that he wasn't bothering him, seeming to left him alone. But, but the church in Rome is in a serious problem. See, they are a racially diverse church. It was about 50% Jewish and about 50% Gentile. I know that seems striking to us uh, who live in this century to think that, that, um, that many Jews would be Christians, but in the first century, almost all Christians were Jews, except for in Rome, where they had begun to become a, a racially mixed group. And here's the problem. Uh, the, 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 the Jews who were Christians in Rome were very conservative, especially in issues like, like kosher laws and about n- having no contact with, with pagans and, um, and their practices in business. But the Gentile Christians thought kosher laws didn't apply to them at all. And they had many friends who were still involved in the pagan world, and they wanted to have contact with them. And so th- this is a bit of an understatement. It's a little bit more complicated than this, but there's a basic issue of everyday ethics that are dividing the church in Rome. And it's causing such a problem that I think Paul's afraid that all Christians are going to be expelled from the city because of the fight that's going on there. So his method of dealing with this issue is to tell them a story. And it's the big story. It's God's big story of rescue. You want to know what the book of Romans is about? It's about settling, not really complicated, but everyday ethical issues by telling them the big story about what God is doing and how God is going to rescue the world. And Romans 10, this passage that we have before us today, is sort of, is sort of the, the, the pinnacle upon which Paul is making his argument. And his argument goes like this. Let me remind you of what it says. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. One more thing you have to understand before you buy into Paul's argument. You have to believe what he believes. And namely, it is this, that every human being on this planet has been infected with the same disease. Every person has the same internal problem. It's the problem of evil. We call it, in in a a more theological term, sin. (laughs) That every person is born with a nature that is turned away from God, that's self-centered. And so you you see this in every society. Every single society on the face of this earth, every Every era and every period has dealt with the same realities. That people hoard resources. They take things that don't belong to them. They they make vows and break them. Um, They they kill people because of the color of their skin, or because of their religion, or because of their political beliefs, or whatever. Why? Why does this happen? Why, Why would it be the case that if electricity went out all across the country right now, there would be sheer panic? Because we know that every human society is filled with people who all share the same problem, the problem of internal sin. This, this infected disease, it, it's in every single one of us. 
You've heard me say this before. A little child learns their, their first word is, better be, data. And their second word is mama, right? Um, or vice versa, however it happens in your family. My family, it comes up. Um, but what are these two ways? But what's the third word they learn? Mine. <laughs> or no, right? Mine. This is my way. I want my way. I want my stuff. Where does that come from? Every little child, did you take that cookie? No, I did not. And it's in their hand, you know. Wow, where did that come from? Where does that... Because, Paul says, we all have been infected with this disease. We can't educate this out. You know, we we can soften it. We can curb it a little bit. But we can't get rid of it. It just keeps coming back. But there is an answer, says Paul. There is a way to deal with this problem. And it comes from a conditional statement. You remember third grade. If you were in Mrs. Prout's class, you would remember conditional statements. Because she would drill them into your head. If a sentence begins with if, it follows with a then, that's a conditional statement. Joseph, are you paying attention? If, then, that's a conditional statement. What does Paul say? If you confess with your mouth that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you believe in your heart. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Sozo, rescued, delivered. This is God. This is the simple formula, isn't it? If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord... And you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, simple formula, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved, rescued. The predicate is this, that you have to believe. You have to believe that the God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, dead and buried, and God raised him bodily from the dead. If you believe that, and confess it with your mouth, you'll be saved. But there's one little caveat. One little caveat. If you lived in the first century and you said, Kuriasi Asus, Jesus is Lord, that was a, a near-death sentence. Because if you said, Kuriasi Asus, Jesus is Lord, you know who's not Lord? Caesar. You get your choice. Who's Lord? You know, Nero might be in a passive stage. You know, he might be in his easygoing years. But no Roman governor, no Roman emperor would ever share his glory with anyone else. Jesus was not crucified by Pontius Pilate because he broke kosher laws. Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate because he dared to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey proclaiming himself to be a king. That's why he was crucified. If you said Jesus is Lord in Rome in the first century, you might lose your life for saying that. That's the clincher, isn't it? Believing in your heart, oh, that's one thing. Confessing with your mouth, that's quite another thing altogether. Because that means you're not just saying, oh, Charles Blonda, I believe you could push that wheelbarrow across the, the, the falls. That's getting in it, right? That's getting in it and letting him push you across. The core of God's saving work right here in Romans 10. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. 
Uh, there's this, um, this story of this fellow uh, called Old Pete. Perhaps I've shared the story of Old Pete before. If so, pretend like it's the first time you ever heard it. But this story about Old Pete, who was uh, the county's best fisherman. Every time he would go off to fish, he would come back with a stringer just full of all kinds of stuff, crappie and bass and trout and bluegill, everything. He had all kinds of, and people wondered, how was it? I mean, did he have a, a technique or a lure? I mean, was there a, was there a place that he went all the time? I mean, how was it that Pete could catch so many fish? The game warden began to wonder how it was that Pete caught so many fish. So one day, as Pete was heading off to the boat, the game warden showed up and said, hey, Pete, I'd like to go fish with you today. He said, fine, that's wonderful, come on, get in. We, they went up to the boat, and they jumped in the boat and motored across the lake and stopped. Pete kind of lured over and opened up his tackle box and pulled out a stick of dynamite. And he lit the dynamite, and he tossed it down into the water. It sank for a couple seconds, and then big bubbles, boom, came up. And fish started floating to the top of the surface. And Pete grabbed his, his net, and he started scooping them out. Well, the game warden went ape, you know. He's, Pete, you, you know... You, you know, good son of a skunk, you just broke like seven laws right there. You're going to you're going to jail, and you're never going to fish again the rest of your life. Pete didn't say anything. He just leaned over, opened up his tackle box again, pulled out another stick of dynamite, lit it. He tossed it in the game warden's lap. He said, "Are you going to sit there complaining all day, or are you going to fish?" <laughs> Sometime today you'll realize that I lit a stick of dynamite and tossed it in your lap. That you've got to do something with this. Believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confessing it with your mouth. Putting everything, all your eggs in this basket that Jesus is Lord. He, is, he has been crucified, died, and has risen from the dead. And I believe that and I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything because of that belief. That's what it means to believe. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.